welcome to episode 96 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, a special guest joins us from the famous Labonte Racing family. Kristen Labonte joins us to explain how the worlds of cycling and NASCAR intersect in ways you may not have thought and what the two can learn from each other. Then we dive into other sports and try to figure out what could work in the NASCAR world. But first, as always, this is episode 96 of Positive Regression. This is the Hall of Fame Racing Edition. David, this is the second week in a row we've gone with the team approach rather than one driver, and that's because this team had a short but memorable run in the mid-2000s. Hall of Fame Racing, the listed co-owner, David, on Racing Reference is Trans Am driver Bill Saunders, but most of us know it because of co-owners including Hall of Fame NFL quarterbacks Roger Staubach and Troy Aikman. The team's drivers included both Hall of Fame Labonte brothers, uh, Tony Raines, Ron Fellows, J.J. Yaley, among others. And even a small historical footnote, David, Joey Logano's first three starts were for this team. David, why do we remember Hall of Fame racing? Moneyball gone wrong. What? Three words. I want to put that out there. Nate Ryan, uh, now my colleague at NBC Sports, interviewed Jeff Morad and Tom Garfinkel, and they were the baseball-centric owners who purchased Hall of Fame racing from Staubach and Aikman. And this is actually from a USA Today article in April 2008. Tom Garfinkel suggested that they conducted a statistical analysis on when winning talent matures in NASCAR. And Alan, you think I'm going to tell you age 39 here, but I'm not, because I'm not going to tell you an age at all. They believed... 35,000 to 50,000 cumulative laps was the point Hmm. that their research identified. And because of this, they selected J.J. Yaley as their first driver for the new regime. He had 42,000 laps total at that point in his NASCAR career. They counted any lap on any surface, apparently, like any track, any anything, any any sort of circular lap that was completed was counted, I guess. Kind of, sort of, yeah. Whoa. Uh, their research suggested his talent would soon mature, and that's not what happened at all, just in a hard way. Uh, J.J. Yaley, who was 31 that year, had a 0.368 peer that season. Uh, a modern-day equivalent would be Michael McDowell in 2019. He had a .375 rating. But the effects here were worse for Mr. Yaley. The lap count came and went. Yaley dropped out of the top 25 in points at one point that year. And if you remember, that meant a loss of a guaranteed starting spot. So they eventually missed races. They changed crew chiefs. That did not improve things. And they sent Yaley packing after 17 starts, uh, sort of a tacit admission that their attempts at moneyballing NASCAR had failed. Interesting. And that is something I did not know about this team. I, you know, I kind of think surface level stuff, David, right? I remember obviously the 96. I remember the, uh, the, the, the sponsor DLP, right? I mean, this was 
back before everyone had these beautiful flat screens, you know, in their house or maybe even four of them, right? Because they kind of come cheap now. Uh, what that DLP technology was a big deal back then, David. So that's for some reason that's what I remember is that it was almost an exclusive sponsor for that team, and I was like, one of those big chunky televisions would be great to have one day. Yeah, and they had in great base games, right? That yeah. different kind of blue, like one of those cars that you could spot on the track at all times. Unfortunately, it just wasn't uh faring very well at all. But for me, it, it's sort of this launching point for smarter, better statistical analysis. And I'm not just tooting my own horn. I think it's better across the board. I mean, fantasy NASCAR websites are are focusing on the right things. Lap counts certainly aren't entirely meaningful, right? Experiences for every driver are different. And that's why so much of the statistical focus nowadays, uh, certainly on talent identification, is age, uh, performance relative to age and relative to running position. And this article, uh, when, when this transpired, it was nearly 13 years ago, the sport itself has come a long way in understanding statistical analysis and talent, so much so that we don't really have conversations at all about cumulative lap counts because there is uh, more influencing that particular growth and more solid ways to identify talented drivers uh, aside from the surface level stats. So unfortunately for, for me, the, the number 96 signifies kind of the, the beginnings of, of getting things right on the, the analytical side of motorsports. What a way to look at it. Uh, I did not think I would learn this much, David, about <laughs> at the beginning <laughs> of one of our episodes. So kudos to you. And I'm glad it was uh, maybe a, a stepping stone toward, uh, toward a, a blossoming career of yours. So good stuff there. Episode 96, the Hall of Fame Racing Edition of Positive Regression. Let's get it started. So we just mentioned two famous racing Labontes. Let's talk about another. We are happy to have Kristen Labonte on the show this week. She is a three-time USA Masters National Champion in cycling. She is now the president of Breaking Limits, a brand marketing, sponsorship, and event management company that specializes in motorsports. She's also married to Bobby Labonte, NASCAR Hall of Famer. And she recently co-wrote a two-part analysis for Velo News about the differences and similarities between NASCAR and cycling. Kristen, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It, it is great to be here with both of you. Yeah. And the theme of your articles was that there's a lot of psych, there's a lot that cycling could learn from the NASCAR world and its teams on how to handle the business of marketing. Now for you as a marketer entrenched in this NASCAR world as you are, what are some of those things that you found or you wanted to get across? And what, what might be the biggest thing when we're talking about what cycling could learn from the NASCAR world? Well, to be honest, I've spent more time and more years of my life in cycling than NASCAR. So coming into NASCAR I, is when I really realized all of these similarities. And the business models are essentially the same. In pro cycling, you have a team owner who is responsible for running the business. They secure all the sponsorship. They hire the riders and the staff. And they run the operation. And it's very similar in motorsports where you have a team owner who does the exact same thing. They're responsible for running the business, securing the sponsorship, hiring the drivers, and everyone that's on the team. Same, It's the same model. And so for me, I started looking at like, okay, what is NASCAR doing that cycling could learn? 
because NASCAR is obviously a top tier sport in America, whereas cycling is, you know, not mainstream. It's not something that we watch every Sunday. As a matter of fact, a lot of people have not watched a lot of cycling, maybe other than the Tour de France. So in my mind, obviously my heart is still in cycling, even though I, <laughs> I am married to motorsports. Right? <laughs> And so I still very much love cycling and I wanted, I wanted to take a look at what I could share from my experience, um, in the motorsports world to help the cycling world kind of grow and become a stronger entity as a marketing property here in the U.S. And the biggest, I think the biggest takeaway is that motorsports really views their teams as businesses and NASCAR is it's a, it's something that people are so passionate about, but at the end of the day, the leadership runs it like a business <laughs> and cycling is not always run that way because it is so easy. I think in a, in a team that's less mainstream and, you know, it's not in your living room every Sunday, it's easy to get wrapped up in the competition side and lose sight of the business side of the sport. And the result of that is teams don't last very long. They lose their sponsorship and then the riders are scrambling trying to find new contracts. So my approach was like, how can we take this business model, you know, similarity and take some learning from one sport to the other? Kristen, one of the things that you wrote about in, in these articles was the attendance or lack thereof in cycling. They aren't selling tickets to these events. Uh, I, I was, I was once a young lad and, and told a, one of my bosses that I wanted to attend the tour to France one day. And he kind of sloughed it off, uh, saying that it's not a good event to attend because they ride by you and that's kind of it. But there seems to have been some headway in this recently. There is a big event, uh, this coming weekend for the world tour, the tour of Flanders. It's in Belgium and maybe it's because Belgium is the Wisconsin of Europe. They like <laughs> beer and they like sports, but uh, a one day show, multiple laps around a certain section of the town. It'll be impacted by pandemic protocols this year, but in previous years, they set up hospitality chalets around this section of the course, and it was an atmosphere. And I look at NASCAR sort of being forced to improve the experiential nature of their live events. Uh, I think Daytona does a really good job at this. They have parts of their uh, the speedway that act as a food court that overlooks the racetrack. And it's a different vibe than sitting in the sun in the grandstands for four hours or so. But in your opinion, at some point, will or maybe should the live event experiences of cycling and NASCAR meet at a middle ground? Because as you wrote, Cycling events don't typically charge admission. Most NASCAR tracks not getting the attendance numbers of the early 2000s uh, and now sort of trying to figure out the best way to entice folks to buy tickets in the first place. Yeah, I think cycling's in a, in a unique spot because we're not racing on closed racetracks. It's like the Tour Flanders, that's a, one of the classics. So there's some marquee one-day races. Tour Flanders is one of them. They're going to get everyone in Belgium either at the race or watching it on TV. It's the, you know, Be Belgium and cycling and ice skating. That's it, <laughs> and, as you mentioned. So the, the situation is, though, that the majority of the viewing for a bike race is not something you can ticket. Yes, there are VIP chalets and 
races do that in cycling. The Tour de France, obviously, the entire Champs-Élysées is lined with chalets and VIP and hospitality. And, and for sure, they do the same kind of hospitality concept. But they definitely, for the most part, are not able to sell tickets on a mountainside, for example. People that... The uh, mountainside viewing, which we, you described as you stand there and you watch them zoom by and they're gone, um, is more the equivalent of the infield camping area. So the, the fans will roll up their campers. They come two days before to stake out their great spot on a perfect switchback. And they're, you know, they're partying with their friends, to be honest with you, having a great time until the riders come. And then they pull up and roll out and go on to the next stage. So it's difficult to sell tickets for cycling. I think there is a piece of this sponsor activation topic that is interesting, kind of from both sides. I, at Daytona last year, obviously I wasn't there this year, but at last year I really took a good, strong look at what was being done in terms of activation and took a lot of notes. And some of it I thought was amazing, and some of it I was surprised wasn't more robust. I know that there was a huge line of people trying to get in. And so I know that, 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 you know, they had to be happy about that, that there were a lot of people that wanted to come to the race. But I think that the activation there in some instances was really, really strong. And at others, I, I really wanted to beef it up a little bit. And I think cycling has a similar challenge in that you have people who are watching, they're attending, but they, in cycling, they might be spread out over a hundred mile course. And there could be thousands and thousands of spectators there, but how do you activate a sponsorship when your fans are spread out over a hundred miles of road? And the Tour of Flanders is in a unique position because they do run circuits and there are a few races like that that are pulling in big spectator um, bases where they're running circuits. And there's a concept that we do here in the, in America, the criterium. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. Um, it's kind of similar where the riders ride circuits and they make multiple laps and those are much more fan friendly and it does make the VIP aspect and the suites and the chalets and the activation more simple, but it's also not the true, you know, cycling course. It's not the, it's not the Tour de France type of course, which is kind of the roots of the sport. In, in terms of, you were talking about sponsorship activation on, on the team side, what you wrote in the Velo news article, one of the blunt points you kind of put out there was winning races by itself is not a good marketing <laughs> strategy. Right. And that was, that, that was, that, that struck me because I know it sounds like a blunt statement, but it's very true. I think about NASCAR. There are a lot of teams that don't win every week, right? Or even right. for maybe a full season, but right. they stay strength. They, they stay strong with their sponsorship. Companies stick with a lot of these teams. Oh, wh- what do you take away from that that you can maybe apply to cycling or just in general, the fact that th- there seems to be something going right on a team side that keeps a sponsor around? Right. I think it's important to know from the very beginning who you are as a property, right? Whether you're a team or a sport, you need to understand what you are, who you are, what you stand for, and what you actually have to offer. And in the sport of cycling, because your your team of riders could be anywhere from six to 26 riders, you've really got a collective of personalities and you've got a culture that gets developed. And what is that? And then looking at who that matches with as a company like, are you kind of rock and roll? Are you very conservative? What What is the culture of that team? And then kind of trying to find the right partners that align with who you are as a marketing property. And then those conversations from the very beginning need to include some 
aspect of how are we going to really drive value for this sponsor? Like, you know, no one knows, everyone wants to win, but no one can guarantee it. And everyone loves a winner, but you, you cannot base your relationship off of winning because when it doesn't happen, you've got to still be able to deliver value to that sponsor. So the winning is not a marketing strategy is it really is, is something that I think needs to be learned more in cycling than any, anything, because again, it's very common in cycling for a, a more of an angel investor to get involved with the team and the pressure is all about winning and they're gone in a year or two. And that is not the way to keep a, a healthy sport alive or a healthy team alive, right? So the last team that I was involved with was sponsored by United Healthcare and we were involved for 10 years together. That's a long-term sponsorship. It's great to have that kind of partnership. And one of the reasons that it lasted so long is that Yes, there was pressure on results. Yes, United Healthcare wanted to have a winning team, but we had multiple um, strategies and supporting tactics in place that still delivered value to United Healthcare, whether we won or not. And so one piece of advice that I give to the teams, and, and it's really as much for the, the smaller teams as the big teams, is to develop a win plan. What are you going to do when you win? Yes, we're going to celebrate. Again, everybody wants to be part of that. It's fun and exciting, and and there's a lot of pride and hard work that go with that. But how are you going to use that moment to really deliver value for the sponsor? Uh, Chris, and sort of to cycle off of that, you you mentioned in the article that, uh, you know, I watch a lot of cycling. I've never really noticed this. Writers don't thank sponsors after a victory, as you mentioned, uh, they, they don't mention them though, and just in, in passing the way a NASCAR driver does. And it would be an easy thing to teach them to do seemingly, right. but cycling seems to get away with something that just wouldn't seem to work in NASCAR. And I want to see if there's any feasible way to do this. You hear the team names, Team Enios, Decunit Quickstep. Uh, we're in America when Lance Armstrong raced, it was Team US Postal Service. The teams are named after the biggest sponsors that they have, and therefore the commentators on the telecast are mentioning sponsor names all the time. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly heavy lifting, but this is something that does not happen in NASCAR because a brand could sponsor a race car or the race itself. And unless they also activated by partnering with Fox or NBC, then there's likely not going to be a mention. You have the visual. But that mention holds some modicum of value, right? It increases recognition. Kristen, there are complications, but can NASCAR teams ever find a similar workaround like this? I realize it'd be difficult for every organization, but just for an example, why isn't JTG Doherty Racing branded as Team Kroger? Could that work? It's an interesting question. And I've actually done a little bit of research on this about what happens, what has happened over the years like, for example, in Bobby's era, he had the same sponsor all year, many years, right? And in that era, you had the same sponsor all year. So in theory, you kind of could go, could have gone in that direction, right? But now, today, and that's how cycling works as well. Uh, and pro cycling teams have the same title sponsor all year, and that's dictated by the International Federation. The reason that's dictated is that they require that each cycling team have one jersey design for the year. And that is because you have six or eight riders in a race and 
riders by team need to be easily identifiable. So, for example, if a pro cycling team was sponsored by United Healthcare, they're wearing blue one weekend, and the next weekend they're sponsored by Love's Trucks Trucks Truck Stop, and they're yellow with the red heart. That's going to be super confusing in the peloton when things are happening really fast. So that is a really simplified explanation of why it is the way it is in pro cycling. That that jersey has got to be the same all year long, and the international federation dictates that. Today in motorsports. It seems as though teams are not keeping the sponsors all year. And I don't know that there are, there may be one or two teams out there that have a single sponsor that's on the car for every race, but off the top of my head, I can't think of one. And so that makes it really difficult then to um, name your team after your sponsor. So you cannot be, you know, you can't be interstate battery. You can't be Eminem Mars racing team because you're sharing the car. Um, and I know a little bit of that is budget driven or maybe a lot of it is budget driven um, because there's a lot of pressure on team budgets, which are from what I understand, again, I'm not, I'm on the marketing side, not on the racing side, on the competition side, but there's a lot of pressure on budgets on the competition side, um, which it's not a cheap sport to, uh, to fund at that level. Um, and so they split it among different uh, sponsors to, to keep the funding where they need to be to do the research and the testing and have the technical aspects of the car where they need them to be. So I don't know if it's, it's possible. It's a great question. Um, but I think it would take some really, really uh, large checks to, to make that happen. And just as a follow-up is as you are a branding and, and marketing expert, does this drive you up the wall that a car <laughs> can, can change seemingly every weekend there's there's very little brand identity from week to week i log restarts every weekend and i lose sight of what car is which which paint scheme belongs to who well so what i'll say this might be a controversial answer but i think that this puts a lot of pressure on the number and i know there's been a lot of conversation around the number where it is if it's too big can it be sized down can it be moved and the pressure really for the team identity is now on the number because this more than ever, it probably was always there, but it's there n- now more than ever because the sponsors do change so frequently. Interesting. And th- that will be a big discussion here in the near future. Like, I sure <laughs> <will>. <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of the marketing and sponsorship side, look, NASCAR has always been kind of the joke, right? Because they've always been so blatant with their sponsors and getting out and thanking all their sponsors, you know, big red gum, all this stuff that they like to, you know, that, that, that becomes a little bit exaggerated, but that, that tells you it's working, I think, right? right? And right. now we're, we're, we're seeing it in the NBA, they have their patches uh, on jerseys now. I think some practice NFL jerseys, like during, Camps, they have sponsorships on their stuff now. So, in terms of the cycling world or, or any other sport that you observe in your marketing profession, I mean, do you see it ever going that far? You know, taking the NASCAR model, will cycling ever comply that far? You think? I would love it if they did. I would love to hear a rider get off the bike, microphone interview, and they thank their sponsor. That would be my proudest moment. I have to say because. <laughs> I raced myself for 12 seasons and I don't think I ever said thank you to my sponsor in an interview. It wasn't part of our vernacular. It wasn't something that we were ever taught in media training. It wasn't even something we considered. It wasn't until I retired from racing that I got more serious as a NASCAR fan and really was spending the majority of my 
days immersed in marketing that I kind of had that light bulb moment. I'm like, why don't we get off the bike and say, you know, my, my last, the last team I raced for was sponsored by an olive oil company, Colavita olive oil. So why didn't I get off the bike and say, I'd really like to thank Colavita for making this day possible. My Colavita teammates were amazing. They delivered me to the line. I never said that. Wow. And I wish I had. So I, that would be my proudest moment if I see a writer actually do that. Chris, I'd like to tap into your marketing expertise here. Uh, a sizable advantage that cycling has over NASCAR, and this was mentioned in part one of the, the two-part article, is that the TV audience spans multiple countries. Right. And this means, in theory the pool of potential brands and companies that can participate in cycling is bigger than what NASCAR has. Uh, Jumbo Supermarkets, for instance, a big sponsor for a big team in cycling right now. Uh, they competed in the Tour de France, yep. even though Jumbo Supermarkets only exist in Belgium and in the Netherlands. But they know Belgians and Dutch people were watching, and thus the sponsorship was beneficial. NASCAR is exclusively North American. What can NASCAR do to ingratiate itself with an international audience so that the sanctioning body and its teams can grow this portfolio of potential sponsors? Whew, that's a big question. I thought <laughs> we were going to go the other way with that. <laughs> so with, with cycling, the, the kind of the centerpiece event for cycling is the Tour de France. Everyone probably that knows anything about bicycles, that, that may be the only race they've heard of. And that's fine because that is the biggest race in the world. And the advantage to being a team that races in that race is that your ROI on your entire season is hit between five to seven to one during the Tour de France. So wow. that piece of information right there is critical. And the reason is because, and that is on the American audience alone. So we researched this very topic for United Healthcare when I was working with that team to, to address, do they want to sponsor the team at the world tour level or just be a really big international American based team? And their ROI was strong as an American based team. But when we looked at, do you want to, their investment as a sponsor would increase two to three times to, to take the team to that level, to be able to race in the tour and the other races that come with it. But the ROI was, you know, five to seven to one, and it was from the tour alone on the American audience alone. So American uh, United Healthcare being an American-based company, an American brand, that was an important piece of information. So I think if we kind of look at that in reverse, we might be able to learn something that could potentially help NASCAR. So, you know, you'd need to look at international broadcast numbers, where the broadcast is really strong. Is it France? Is it South America? Is it Canada? And start figuring out where the ROI is strong in terms of geography to figure out how we were going to pull in international sponsors. Because right now there are international sponsors. Dow Chemical is a huge international company, right? Um, but their, their interest in NASCAR, you know, from an outsider's perspective, from a fan's perspective, appears to be that they're using it in America to grow their business in the U.S. Perhaps we're wrong. Perhaps there's more to that story than we know, and they are using it internationally. We don't know that. But I think if we're going to look at pulling in international sponsors, we also need to know where the sport is really healthy geographically around the world. 
uh, in terms of, of that marketing and and that international audience and what it could do for NASCAR, or, and I'm naive here as to what it does in cycling, but uh, the, the diversity, the diversity of a team, whether you have a Belgian or whether you, know, you have Daniel Suarez, who's a Mexican driver in NASCAR, I mean, can, can the diversity of a team or a sport itself help in that sponsorship issue, whether it be cycling or NASCAR? Absolutely. I think, you know, I actually had this very conversation this morning. So most cycling teams are international. They're listed because they're licensed with a country. So your example earlier, U.S. Postal Service was considered an American team, but there were three or four American riders on that team out of 30 riders. Hmm. It's very international in terms of the roster. So that is an advantage that cycling has is that they are presenting a very diverse um a group of riders, you know, to sponsors that if there is a sponsor that is from Colombia, there's a good shot. They have a Colombian rider on the team. Colombian uh, Colombians are known to be great climbers. If there's a sponsor that's French or German or Belgium or from Asia, you know, the, it's very international in terms of the roster. So I think having more diversity um, in motorsports and in NASCAR in particular is it's, it's going to be great on a lot of levels. I think, now, having that now, we're just starting to see the tip of the iceberg of what what that can do um, in terms of audience growth um, and also sponsorship growth. Good stuff. And this is uh, thank you for your time. I mean, this has been eye opening. I've certainly learned a lot from David about cycling, but now more about <laughs> the international world of cycling and marketing. Yeah. I, I can't let you go without asking some nerdy sort of NASCAR question. And all oh. I want to know is, I mean, we know Bobby Labonte. He retired yeah. a while back and, but you know, recently we've seen him in the Euro series over in Europe and now he's in a modified. I mean, what has been this itch? And you know, as a wife slash marketer slash sponsorship person, <laughs> what have you thought about this? Uh, you just want to get him out of the house. I mean, what, what has been behind this drive to get him back behind the wheel of a race car? Well, I'll tell you one thing that we have in common. When we put, when Bobby puts on a helmet, he turns into a different guy. <laughs> And I do too. When I put on my helmet, I'm a different person. So I don't race bicycles anymore, but he will attest to the fact that if I am kitted up and I have my helmet on, all bets are off. <laughs> so, so we are, I think we are very competitive people and we love to race. You know, people have asked me about doing these long, you know, multi, multi endurance, you know, ride 500 mile kind of thing. And Ironmans and things like that. And I have no interest. I'll tell you this. I have no interest in going far. My interest is in going fast. <laughs> and that is Bobby. He oh. like he likes to go fast. He loves to race. He still enjoys it. Um, he's loving the modified thing. We had a great time doing the NASCAR Europe uh, project. The racing was, was only half of it. And I think that's where both of us are with sports today is that the racing is, is, fun because we still both like the speed, but for us now we're um, at a point where we can kind of take a step back and, and look at the experience and look at the people we meet along the way and the adventures that happen and, you know, all the stories that go with it and just t chalk it up to one bless blessing after another, to be honest with you. That's, that's really what it's about for both of us today. Well, great stuff. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your background, your expertise. Uh, definitely learned a lot. So Kristen Labani, thank you for being on Positive Regression. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. 
With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Again, great stuff with Kristen Labonte. Happy to uh, have her on and get her perspective. Now, David, it was a discussion, right, of the cross-sections of NASCAR and cycling. So naturally, as we are wont to do on this podcast, why not go deeper, right? Why not look at other sports and what connections they could possibly have from NASCAR or what NASCAR could learn from other sports other than cycling? Uh, what, what do you think could work? Or what do you think? Give me something that that works somewhere else that could potentially, maybe, even if it's a crazy idea, what could work in NASCAR that you see out there in the sporting universe? Loans. Absolutely loans. And some of our listeners are asking, what are loans? (laughs) Uh, Popular in European football or soccer. Uh, A loan is when a player is allowed to temporarily play for another team usually for a half a season or a year at a time. Why do these happen? Uh, there are a few reasons. One is budget. Uh, they want another team taking over at least part of a player's salary. Uh, another reason is playing time. A player might be considered surplus to requirements, but he's on the books, he's being paid, and you you don't want him or her on the bench. So a team frees them up to develop elsewhere. And that leads into a third application, and this is where I think NASCAR can come to the surface, player development. In soccer, players graduate from a youth team or an under-21 team, as it's referred, that is owned by the parent club. They graduate from that to the professional team itself. But the player might be better than the youth level, and also perhaps not ready to help the pro team in a productive manner. I think the Xfinity series right now is a good youth racing analog. And when I think about some of the rookies over the last few seasons, they might not have been ready for the cup series. That could be fair, but they were totally ready to leave the Xfinity series because they were overperforming their lot there. Both things were true. And this is something that is acknowledged in baseball. And now I realize that I'm crossing into uh, another sport entirely. But baseball players like this are referred to as quadruple A. There is no quadruple A in baseball, but it's a term reflective of the players that are better than triple A, not yet ready for the majors. We kind of have, uh, have seen this with Christopher Bell last year with Levine Family Racing. Uh, we saw it previously with Chris Busher at Front Row Motorsports and then JTG before he moved on to Roush Fenway. 
those drivers left their parent teams, competed elsewhere, learned the Cup Series without maybe so much pressure to perform. I know Chris Buescher cracked the playoffs, but this kind of thing acts as a de facto quadruple A or a loan. And for the loan component, this feels like something that could be more transactional in NASCAR than it is. Uh, perhaps a parent team or a manufacturer pays the driver's salary, throws some support, uh, technical or otherwise, to some of these smaller teams, upgrades a smaller team for a year or two to to get a driver they realize is important into the Cup Series, but someone they don't want to lose yet and they don't have room. And Alan, I think this ultimately could create a cottage industry. I look at BJ McLeod's team, first year team that he co-owns with Matt Tift. They could totally exist as a loan outlet for bigger teams. It's just sort of thriving. That could be uh, a separate and new business model. And depending on the level of support, this is something that could help a small program grow. It could help build relationships with manufacturers and, and help these young drivers assimilate to what we now know is a very big jump from the Xfinity Series to Cup. I think you're onto something because, as you said, it may already be happening. Um, my favorite loan in sports history was when Jamie Tart went to Richmond for Manchester City. Do you know about that one? Ted Lasso? Yes. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, David. I had to do it because when you put out loans, I know you're a big football slash soccer fan. Uh, I'm not in that world, but the only reason I know about these loans is because of that show. So uh, that, I just wanted to put my soccer knowledge out there for you. Wonderful TV show. I'm glad that you brought it up. I'm glad that's a part of the positive regression lexicon now. But yeah, I think this is a, a plan that can totally work. And I think yeah. that there is, uh, some, some cottage industry potential here for smaller teams. I mean, some of these teams, as, you know, as we've sort of learned over the last few years are just trying to exist, trying to differentiate themselves and BJ McLeod's team uh, is something obvious. You hear him talk and you understand that their approach is an honest one. They they are trying to build something and they realize that they don't have the best lot in the sport. A way to improve that lot is to do something a little off the beaten path. And this could be a, could be a route. I like it. All right, you did loans. I'm going to go with tournaments, David. We are in March or just ending March, right? But uh, March Madness still going on. And it just had me thinking about NASCAR. And look, we just came off a Bristol dirt race, right? There are already plans, you would think, uh, at least iRacing-wise, for if and when they wanted to do a street race in Chicago. So NASCAR, getting a little crazy, right? Trying new things. Why not the idea of a tournament, right, to spice things up? I mean, it, it would be more of a marketing idea. I mean, I'm not going to lie and tell you it's different. But uh, my idea, David, would be straight-up match races, right? Put the bracket out there, 32 drivers, seed them, and, and then you have match races, and the winner moves on in the tournament. I think you could do it all, hell, in one night <laughs> at, at Darlington, say. Call it May Madness. And, you know, uh, look, a lot of details to fill in, I know, but... Again, these match races, what, do 10 laps, and then maybe the final round could be 15 laps. But, uh, you know, straight up, one-on-one, -on -one, that's all you got to do. And then, you know, you could burn right through them, and it would be a fun event. You could have your little chart, your little bracket like everyone does. It's different from a playoff. This is a tournament, one-on-one, -on -one, straight up match races. Do it at Darlington. I think 
the idea of a tournament is something you could bring over to NASCAR, especially in this current era of trying different things. What do you think? I would rather watch this than a traditional all-star race. There you go. We replace the all-star race with a yeah. tournament. That, see, we're already onto something. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is something different, but it's also, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel, uh, at all for the sport. If it's a special one-off event, it is something that I think they could capture the imagination of fans. And you're right. I mean, just think of the, the, the betting potential for this. I mean, is, is every, is every match race uh, a potential to wager money? I, I think so, right? So yeah, I it, I I do approve it. I think you might be onto something. All right. I, I, and again, when you throw in the idea of doing the all-star race in that format, I think uh, we're onto something. So great minds uh, coming together for something even better. All right. So loans, working, tournaments, maybe. What else do you see out there in the world of uh, of sports that could maybe apply to NASCAR? Uh, there's a football they play specifically in America. Uh, oh, yes. It's I've professional it. tackle football. <laughs> they they have a talent combine every year that somehow gets massive television ratings. And I'll fully admit I care not for the NFL. Uh, I think there are some weird undertones to the kinds of things they do with prospective players at these combines. But I do know that the original spirit of the combine – is that it's essentially a tryout. And I'm all for tryouts, if done correctly. We've said in the past that team decision makers probably are not listening or care about what some niche podcast says about advanced NASCAR stats. And they're probably not using good old pause reg for talent evaluation. So drivers have to make things obvious. Uh, as we have discussed, having to go win X amount of races in – it doesn't even matter the series anymore. That's not always feasible, right? And it isn't always on the level. I was encouraged by some news earlier this year that Bill McAnally Racing, uh, a, a contender seemingly every season in the Arca West series, they are doing something like this. They are going to hold – a small series for young drivers. The drivers do have to pay to participate, but it is a series in which drivers compete in identically prepared cars to showcase their current natural abilities. And I just think that's great. Uh, of course, this will be treated with skepticism. It is difficult to ensure that every car is equal, but this is better than what else exists because that would be nothing. So this is a start. It is essentially a combine that's more than drivers turning laps on an empty racetrack. I've been to combines like that. I've organized combines like that. I'm not a fan of them at all. They are cost effective, but they don't reveal a true racing acumen. A lot of people can go out and cut a lap. That doesn't mean that they can race. So a talent combine, and I, I I do want fans and folks to watch because by all means, your, your fans fall in love with some of these young drivers and you get a chance to follow their careers. But a talent combine, I've always wanted to see one properly done. And from the sounds of things, it's possible that we have one on the horizon. Very cool. Uh, do you think it involves uh, the number of bench presses you can do or a 40 time? Or the percentage of body fat that yeah. you have. Yeah, it gets, it, to me, it gets really weird. Uh, the, the, the deeper context, uh, for, for NFL draft stuff and things like that. But 
in terms of the spirit of what that is, just people going out and showing what potentially they're capable of, I'm all for that, especially in a sport. There is no draft uh, in NASCAR or any form of auto racing. The, the chances to really showcase your stuff against other drivers and equal equipment, that that's rare and potentially could be a game changer if done correctly. Uh, I think that could foster a, a really strong competitive environment in the sport and give some looks to drivers who might not otherwise receive them. All right, good stuff. You uh, continue to come up with somewhat realistic, plausible ideas that uh, <laughs> could maybe one day find their way in, and I will balance it out with another insane idea that we see in other sports, though, and I think maybe, just maybe, let your mind go there, David, and consider, consider the NASCAR world with timeouts. T.O., take a T.O., baby. Now think about what timeouts are used for. Sometimes in sports, you need to regroup, right? Stop the bleeding. Like, it's just all going wrong. You need to reset everything. Why not in racing? So I've set up some parameters, right? Here's the catch. Every team gets one timeout per season. Can't be used. Only only twice in a race can a timeout be used. So if two other teams have used a timeout, when I say timeout, it means a caution. It means an opportunity for people to come pit. So only two teams per time can use it. So you got, there's a little strategy there and you can't use it after there's 10 to go in a race. So what I'm thinking, so think back to Atlanta, Kyle Larson dominates, but it's all going away, right? It's all going the wrong way. So before 10 to go, his only time in the season, if he wanted though, he could call timeout. They could come down pit road, put it all back together. Or I think of the Bristol dirt race when Bubba Wallace having the best day of the year so far, right? Spins out. They don't call a caution for some reason. The only caution they didn't call that day wasn't for Bubba Wallace. What can they do if they wanted to? One time a year, call timeout. Everything gets caution. They can get come back in, fix the tire, go back out. And, and look, again, there's some gray area. There's some rules to fill in. But this idea that every team gets one to use strategically throughout the year, I think I, we could play with it, David. We could play with it. We could do it. For some reason, I only see the potential for conspiracy because Chase Elliott would end up having using a timeout very early in the season and then come playoff time, he's out of timeouts and NASCAR throws a caution anyway. Like that, that could be, oh, the impact of that. I mean, the, the chatter would go on for days, but I actually see. I actually see a world in which NASCAR just does this anyway, whether it makes sense or not, because it kind of does like what we have going on lately. Yeah. That's the part that's kind of scary. Uh-huh. Um, ooh, I, I, don't, yeah, I, don't call it a timeout. Call it like your own personal stage break. Everyone, everyone gets to throw a wild card stage break in there. Yeah. Or you, or, or like, oh my goodness, uh, a Joe, a Penske team or Joe Gibbs team pays a Rick Ware team to call a timeout at a, yeah. at a playoff oh, race. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's the potential for controversy, which leads me to believe that even though I kind of disagree with everything about it, it's probably the most realistic idea that we've just uttered. So I'm not saying ah, it's a good idea. I don't know. It's it's an idea. It's not a good idea, but it is an idea. So, and other sports have them. So why I don't not? think I don't think there are good ideas or bad ideas. I think there are usable ideas. Like, and and this weirdly, I think the the way the the things that NASCAR has cooked up lately, this might be more of a usable idea than we're giving it credit. 
Hey, you never know. You never know. We're just throwing ideas out there. Again, I'm glad this whole episode has been balanced out with my crazy ideas and then the, the brains and, and, and knowledge that we had with Kristen Labani, and then I could balance everything out on the back end of it. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, it's a yin and yang. It's a good compromise. A very good yin and yang to this episode. So uh, there you have it. Uh, That was, uh, you know, looking at other sports as we head in to the off weekend in NASCAR. Uh, Episode 96, David. It's been a good one. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, TuneIn, and now YouTube. We are available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review. This, of course, helps spread the word. We always notice, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, we'd love to hear them. Reach out on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, we're heading into an off weekend for Easter. What are you working on, though? This week, I'm on Forbes.com writing about the polarizing Hendrick track attack road course program. It is an exclusive. Uh, I had the opportunity to tour the track attack shop on the Hendrick campus and interviewed uh, Dale Ledbetter and Bill Snyder, who oversee the program. It is a high performance track day program, a creative and apparently controversial way for Hendrick to shed inventory And also on Forbes, I took a look into what Ford Racing has done and is continuing to do to cultivate its young driver crop. So uh, please check those out. You may follow me on Twitter at DavidSmithMA so that you can catch all of the articles that I drop. Good stuff there. Always working hard. Yeah, another slow weekend coming up. So uh, no fantasy live, but, uh, you know, maybe you can give your fantasy team a reset. It's been a, it's been a rough start for some, especially with that dirt race that we didn't see coming. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so just keep up with me at Alan Kavana on Twitter, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Alan Kavana Media, all that stuff. I'll have some new stuff up there as we go through the off weekend and, uh, you know, enjoy your off weekend. You know, we always get, uh, love racing three days out of the week, but, uh, you know, enjoy the weekend while we have it because there's not many breaks in the season. So make sure you enjoy it. Thank you as always for listening to Positive Progression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Cavana. Have a great weekend. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.